Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., today's topic, yes. building something from nothing. Ooh. You got nothing in your pocket. Yeah. Pretty much nothing in nothing your pocket. In pocket. I've been there. <laughs> How do you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple times in my life. <laughs> How do you build it up? So it's a little bit of guerrilla marketing. Yeah. It's a little bit of that. And a little bit of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Today's guest is Damon John from Shark Tank. Yes. And I'm telling you, some people who've listened to the podcast know uh-huh. <laughs> we've had some guests that I was very much looking forward to. Yeah. Big old time guests. Yeah. And we will never play Show the interview. Their video. Yeah, or play because, their video. <laughs> yeah. Did I say play their video? No, I just said play their video, we will we'll never show their we, interview. We will never yeah. reveal their interview because they were horrible. Yes. I'm not going to gossip. I'm no. not going to tell you who they were. Not naming names. Rhymes with. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> not going to do it. One guy, yeah. you know, we can gossip if we don't say their names. One guy was drunk. Yes. <laughs> yeah. you remember no, that? Yeah, it was bad. It was bad. And we Sometimes were so excited we do listen to these interviews, around those. and we're like, no. And so whenever a big name comes on, I always yeah. worry. Damon John was... First of all, when we weren't recording, regardless, he was as charming and fun as you would ever hope that he would be. Yeah. And he's bigger than us, slightly. (laughs) A little bit more famous. (laughs) A little bit more successful. So first of all, that was wonderful. I was very curious about those days growing up in Queens Mm -hmm. and how he really got started. He'll tell you in the interview, he printed like six hats or eight hats. I can't Uh remember how many. And he would go to hip hop video shoots. Yeah. Like none of the MTV wasn't touching these guys and they were all making their own. And he would try to get these rappers to wear his hat. Uh (laughs) And so the rappers wore the hat because they got a free hat. But then they didn't realize, like, when they were done with the video, he actually took the hat back. Yeah, because <laughs> he didn't have enough hats. And FUBU got started. Yeah. That's how it all happened. You know, it just got me thinking back in the days of, uh, of yore. <laughs> yes. And, uh, oh, the famous days of yore. Yeah. I remember I wanted to be a best-selling author. I actually mm-hmm. wrote down my goals when I was in high school, and one of them was I wanted to be living in Oregon, and I wanted to be a New York Times best-selling author. Yeah. And I moved to Oregon, yep. and I was writing a book, and I asked my pastor at the time, who's just a few years older than me, is a very wise man, and he said, if you're going to go down this route and you want to have a family, how much money do you think you'll need to make next year? The number was like 50 grand. I said, well, 50 grand. It was just 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And he said, okay, well, the key is, can you write a book? And make fifty grand, and if you can't do that, then you're not going to be a writer. Yeah, <laughs> she said that to me. Yeah, that was deflating. But he was actually trying to be like, "Hey, yeah, you know, you're but not you did young." It. That's the crazy thing is you really did start. Well, what from happened was I wrote that. three chapters. I would say nine out of twelve months didn't have rent the day before rent was due. Yeah. I had to go figure out how to get four hundred bucks or whatever because I was living with a bunch of guys. I remember those days, but you have a dream and you just know, you yeah. just know. You, I know I got to do. This and yeah. wrote a few chapters of Blue Like Jazz because my first book didn't sell any copies. My mother bought half of them. Yeah. <laughs> and then Blue Like Jazz got a $50,000 advance. And I was like, that's a sign from God. Yeah, it's a 50 grand. I'm supposed grand, to write this and book. And you're ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. And the rest was history. Yeah. Hopefully, my pastor, Rick McKinley, who I love dearly, is listening to this and says, See, I told you. <laughs> supposed to be a writer. And he's going to say, See, I told you. I got you yeah. 50 grand. Yeah, exactly. Literally, God heard me. That's what he would say. Anyway, you also, as an actor in LA, yeah. there were a period of time you were living in your car by choice. By choice. I was kind of moving around. Who chooses says, to live in their well, car? Living in the car is a strong term. I lived like out of my my car, I would say. I stayed on people's couches and in <laughs> borrowed beds. Your car was a suitcase. I never slept in my car, but I lived out of it. Yes, all my clothes and everything kind of stayed in my in my car. But 
there was a how long? What was times. the longest period without a bed that was yours? Mine, two years. Two, oh my gosh! Yeah. You were living out of your car. Yeah, That's I mean by choice. Out of your car. I mean it was by choice. It was really like I kind of went on a vagabond journey and kind of jumped around and moved Oregon, California, kind of traveled around, did some writing, acting. Saw the Redwoods. Yes, I did. <laughs> Camped in the Redwoods out of my car. But no, I remember going, I moved to LA. I was been doing comedy for a while and I decided I want to actually break into doing like on camera work instead of just theater and on stage work. And again, kind of started with nothing. You kind of go, how do I build this dream? Right. And so I just kind of looked up on the internet how to become an actor, essentially. And they all said, you know, you need good headshots. You need to take classes, all these things. So I started taking some acting classes. Then you get in with people. I ended up getting headshots. And then I basically took a last chunk of money that I had to get the headshots, get about a hundred prints made with my name and resume on them, and then looked up online who were the SAG approved agents in LA. And I sent them handwritten notes with my headshot, sent about a hundred of those off, my last kind of chunk of money with my headshots and ended up getting four interviews with agents who brought me in to talk to them. And two of them made me offers and said they would offer to represent me. And then I chose one and then I but was off. But it was guerrilla marketing. It was, it was starting from scratch. The and I took kind of my last little bit of savings to kind of go and do those things and ended up getting, you know, a few commercials and it works. movie stuff out of it. But it started from nothing. I love those stories. Yeah. I've had multiple times in my life. You've done that other times. I've done it other times, but not like Damon John. Yeah. Not like, (laughs) you know, that. I mean, we did some things when I was a kid. My mom was in charge of the company picnic and they had raffle tickets Uh and the raffle tickets were in the house Uh because she was in charge of her (laughs) company picnic. And so when I was nine, my friend Roy and I sold raffle tickets around the neighborhood for the Catholic Church yes. uh, to win a large you screen sold television. The story. <laughs> and um, there was no, we were not Catholic, and no, there was no, there not, was no television. We made a dollar a piece. So that's an entrepreneurial story. It has started from nothing. <laughs> and yes. now I'm a mobster. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> I feel bad. I owe like eight bucks to whoever lived in our neighborhood. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go back. And, anyway, I don't want to say too much, but he, yeah, don't he created billboards for free. To promote his stuff and the way he did it is fascinating. Yeah. It's all here. I also asked him a question that I haven't asked a whole lot of people, but sometimes I ask if I interview somebody really prominent, I ask, did they know when they were a kid that there was something special about them? And their answer always fascinates me because most of them say no. And I confess, this is a judgment. I don't believe them. Yeah. <laughs> I think they knew. I don't think you become president or prime minister if you didn't know yeah. early. Yeah. I understand you have to be humble. But I think they knew. Yeah. And I ask him this question. Yeah. You're going to have to listen to see, hear what he has to say. Anyway, here's my conversation with Damon John. Damon, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, you hardly need an introduction, even though JJ and I kind of geeked out about you a little bit. My wife and I, there are only a couple shows that we agree on watching. She goes The Bachelor, I go to the backyard. But with Shark Tank, we're both completely in. You guys have been on to something for a long time there. People could easily look at you and go, oh, well, you know, rich, successful, that sort of thing. It's not how it started out for you, is it? No, it's not. Now, first of all, thank your wife for controlling the remote control. Um, but um, <laughs> no, it didn't start. I mean, you know, people see me in a suit and, you know, it took me a long time to even be able to afford a suit. I grew up in lower middle class area of Queens. 
you either worked at LaGuardia Airport, JFK Airport, or you worked at Belmont Racetrack, Aqueduct Racetrack, or you either were visiting or you were living in Rikers Island. That's pretty much my neighborhood. What were your parents like? Were they the sort to sort of push you? And did you get some drive from them or was there a foundation there? Parents, hardworking individuals. My father came over here from Trinidad at the age of 16 years old, scrubbed up the streets, made enough money by the age of 20 to bring his six siblings over here. My mother grew up in Brooklyn, lower middle class, not even lower middle class, poor. Hardworking people, they always told me my day job would never make me rich. It would be my homework. But, you know, as I grew up, you know, life happened and my father and mother went their own ways. I never really saw my father after my um, 10th or 11th birthday. When did FUBU get started? I mean, was that the first big break or did you have something else before then you were able to leverage that success? When did you realize that you could actually do more? I don't want to you know, say it wrongly here, but even be more than some of the folks you were hanging out with, that there was something about your life that was going to be different. There was no, I thought I could be more than anybody else. It was that, you know, in my neighborhood, we were taught that you're either going to be dead or in jail by 21. But however, in my neighborhood, even though it got devastated by crack, something else was happening on the same exact timeline in 86 in my neighborhood. But for some reason, Hollis, Queens, I don't know if there's something in the water there, but, you know, the people that come from Hollis, Queens are... LL Cool J, Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, Lost Boys, Russell Simmons, uh, Tribe Called Quest. All kind of in your age group, right? All in my age group, and they all are from the same square two miles in Hollis, Queens. So what happened was I was looking at them and looking at the drug dealers and saying, well, the drug dealers are dead or in jail. These people are actually making money, enjoying what they're doing in life, and they have a great following. I can't rap, sing, dance, or produce. What can I do within that system? And it was only after my best friends were all dead or in jail that I decided to just basically get a job at Red Lobster. I said, I'm not cool enough to rap and I'm not tough enough to sell drugs. So I'm going to go and be a waiter. It was when I decided to step away from any of that lifestyle and that life that I started to actually make money. I started to just feel really good about myself. Was there a decision to kind of stay clean and stay out of that? So that was foundational, right? To just say, hey, I'm not going to fall into that trap. I always stayed clean, but I always was convinced because at that time we didn't have social media. We didn't see many African-Americans who were doing well. I mean, there was an entrepreneur on TV, but it didn't look like Fred G. Sanford, the junk man, was doing that well. So I didn't really know who to aspire to. So when I sat back and I said, I just want to have a normal life, then I started to be creative and I started to think about the things I wanted to do. And a passion came to me, which was maybe I can't rap, sing, and dance, but maybe I can dress the community because I love this community of hip hop. But that's a long way, though, from waiter at Red Lobster to discovering you got a sense for fashion and you can dress some of these guys. What was the connection? Were you noticing, like even in high school and college, what people were wearing? And what was the connection? No, the connection is that, uh, you know, hip hop was this new disruptive technology as far as the best way to explain it. Yeah. Because hip hop is something that, you know, you can it came with a way to walk, talk and dress. And we didn't know what was going on in the streets of Compton. So just like today, if you want to go on to Instagram or Twitter or any social media, that was giving us the information. I love to dress. And then I started to say, wait a minute, all these other designers that we're buying, they don't respect or value us. They laugh at us. So let me make a couple of hats. And I made a couple of hats. That's not for the purpose of making money. I made a couple of hats because I wanted to get away to get onto the video set because we were all trying to get onto the video set to see these amazing artists film these videos, but <laughs> we were all getting kicked off. So if I have a couple of hats, I can say, wait a minute, 
I'm dressing the artist over there. And at least I would be the last to get kicked off the set. Oh, literally, you're holding, not a hat that you're wearing, you're holding... I'm holding a dozen hats that I made at my home. And actually, you know, I made them Good Friday 1989. And I wow. remember standing outside in the corner and I tried to sell them. I sold $800 worth of hats. I said, wait a minute, I have something here. I'm going to go into these rap video sets with hats and a couple of t-shirts. And I literally had the same 10 t-shirts and the same 10 hats that I would go on to 30 video sets over the course of two years from 89 to 91. And I would put them on a wrapper and I would take the shirt back after they shot the video, put it on another wrapper and take the shirt back because I didn't have any more <laughs> shirts to buy. And before you know it, there were all these videos. How did you get that sort of authority in their eyes to say, yeah, I need to wear that guy's shirt? Did you already have relationships with them? I did not really have relationships when I grew up in the neighborhood, but I had a cool shirt and they thought it was free until they took it back off and put it in their trailer and I stole it back from them. You know, they were excited about it because they also felt this same kind of rebellion. Like, you know what? These major companies, they don't want to give us anything. They don't even want us to wear it. They're asking us not to wear their clothes. And you know what? This is a nice kid in the design. I like it. Let me give them a shot. But after one wore it, then another would wear it. Another right. would see it and another would wear it, you know? And the important thing there is you found a tribe to represent. You created a product that bound a group of people together who were already bound together, but it gave them a symbol that we were one and we were something and we were up against something. Is that accurate? It was us, you know, see the same tribe of people as hip hop, right? You know, I can walk down the street and I can see somebody across the street wearing Timbaland, Adidas, Polo, and Ralph Lauren, the same exact way I'm wearing it. I know he likes hip hop or she likes hip hop. Now, I was giving them their own product designed from people that valued them to now reinforce that statement of not only their music, but I'm dressing and I'm also giving back to people that value me. Was it already for us by us? Had you come up with that by then? I already came up with Forest Bias. Now, the big misconception is the reason I came up with Forest Bias is that the company that owned Timberland at the time had put a statement in the New York Times that said, we don't sell our boots to drug dealers. And at that time, Timberland was a very big brand in our market. We were buying Timberland like the kids buy Jordans these days, every single color, right? And I felt like they slapped us in the face. So I came up with Forest Bias, and the theory of Forest Bias was if you love hip-hop, this is for you. People would later on interpret it as only for a certain color, and I wouldn't be as prejudiced as Timlin was because, listen, today if Eminem wanted to wear it, absolutely. He's a better rapper than most people. And, you know, we were the first ones to dress sync and many other people, but it ended up becoming very, very a powerful statement for everybody. People thought it was just for people in hip-hop, just for African-Americans, just for rappers. But, you know, their own interpretation of it made it grow in various different areas, but it could have hurt it in some other areas. Yeah, it's interesting because that's the first I've heard that, and maybe it's because I'm ignorant, and I always assumed it did mean the African-American community. But as a white guy, it never actually bothered me because I thought, this is a community that is overlooked in some ways, and they're doing something about it, which to me is internal locus of control, which is a positive thing for everything in your life. I just thought it was always a brilliant move regardless. I want to go into some of your guerrilla marketing techniques, and we kind of know what that is, but getting on the set of hip-hop videos is part of that. Anything else that you did that was kind of wild and creative to get your brand out there during this time? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so, you know, those nasty storm gates when you go to inner cities that are pulled down or security gates that are pulled down in front of all the stores. I just went from 91 to 93. I went to 300 of those stores. And I said, listen, if your gates pulled down, it has this nasty spray paint, looks horrible on it. Can you do me a favor? Can I just spray paint a beautiful white? And I'm just going to put authorized FUBU dealer on it because this is our neighborhood and we're the FUBU guys. They would say, I don't care. That's a security gate. So I would spray paint 300 of those gates. Wow. 
billboard. So 90, free. That's a free billboard. <laughs> yeah, 91 to 93. Later on, somebody will do their analysis. Because they're pulled down during morning rush hour and generally during evening rush hour, like you just said, because of all the trains and the buses and the pedestrians, it was about $3 million worth of <laughs> free advertising. I was about to guess $3 million. I remember when MTV started blurring logos. Well, if you're going to blur logos and now all those rappers are wearing it, I'm not going to put a logo. I know sports are pretty big. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to create a number that didn't actually exist at the moment, 05. In 1991, nobody had an 05 on their jersey. They had 5-0. So I put the 05 on the jersey, and I'd be the only one besides BMW, I think, 3 Series, the only one to ever register a number. <laughs> and people would know that that's a FUBU jersey no matter what, so I wouldn't get blurred by MTV. Another one I remember MTV charged me. They wanted to charge me, and this one we started making money. They wanted to charge me $6,000 for a 30-second commercial. And BET, Black Entertainment Network, they wanted to charge me $700 because, you know, they basically said, listen, you know, we only have 15% of the viewers at MTV. Well, I know better. I know African-Americans and inner city people and Latinos and minorities. There are way more people in the house. And by the way, they don't pay for cable anyway in the project. <laughs> so I sat there and I bought a million dollars worth of ads. And I did 20 times the business because it was literally 20 times the people watching the same exact networks. And I'm paying the rate of 700 instead of 6,000. So, I mean, there's so many ways to do this stuff. Yeah, I'm curious. And I don't want to get me or you in trouble here. They don't teach this at Harvard Business. And as you've grown as an entrepreneur into managing all the money and the businesses that you're managing now, have you ever come to a point of frustration where the sort of institutionalized education has, you've met some people who've studied a bunch of numbers and they don't have the street smarts and the common sense that you have, and you've wondered, what in the world are they teaching these people at these schools? Because to me, everything you're saying is really common sense, but they're not teaching this in school. That's the exact reason why, you know, we're speaking today and you add so much value to people. Don't overthink what these other people are doing because we don't know where the sources are coming from. And a lot of times, be very honest, if you're going to be successful, if they knew so damn much, you wouldn't <laughs> be able to be successful. So this has nothing to do with minorities or anything else. This has something to do with a mother knowing how to treat her children or a grandmother knowing how to do this or somebody who knows, you know, something about anything. It doesn't have to do with white, black, yellow. If you know and you trust in your gut. You know, they say, if you know how something works, you'll always have a job. But if you know why something works, you'll always be their boss. And if you really have a trust in your gut, you're going to be okay. Stop listening to other people. Well, it's not just that. There's this component also of, and again, I hate to use this kind of phraseology, but delusional belief that is really part of success. I mean, it's really part of, I'm supposed to succeed. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know the rules, but I just know it is in my destiny to do so. And it sounds like you kind of have some of that, too. I remember asking Pete Carroll, you know, coach of the Seahawks. Yep. I had asked former presidents, billionaires, when you were a kid, did you know you were destined for something special? And I'm telling you, Damon, every one of them got humble on me, and I'm convinced did not tell the truth. And they said, no, I'm just like everybody else. It was only Pete Carroll who said, oh, I knew when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they're all telling the truth because I'll be very honest. I thought so, too. You thought you were special or you didn't think? I thought I was special. I thought I was going to make it. Okay, well, you know, that's because as a kid, you think the world is, you know, it's your apple and you can do anything you want. But I had this great idea at 18 years old. I decided to open up a crash car, you know, sell crash cars. I buy them at 2500 I put them together at $5,000. Then I sell them at $10,000. I did the math. It was very simple. I was going to be a gajillionaire in two <laughs> years, right? So, you know, the old saying Mike Tyson says, you know, everybody has a plan so they get punched in the 
the face. Yeah. Life punched me in the face. And after life punched me in the face, I decided my next job was going to be Red Lobster. At that point, I realized I'm not special. <laughs> so I think that we all start off thinking special and then something happens, you know, and then some of us are like Kanye West who think they're special forever. Do you think you realize maybe you're not special or maybe it was a seed of doubt? Because I remember when I wrote my first book, like an idiot, I thought I was the next John Steinbeck. That book sold 10,000 copies. My mother bought 9,500 of them. And it humbled me. And then the next book ended up selling you know, a lot of copies. Ended up on the New York Times for a long time. What it did is it planted that seed of doubt that almost made me want to go, okay, I'm going to have to work harder for this. Otherwise, I'm one of these crazy people who thinks they're supposed to succeed. You know what I mean? It did. You're spot on. It made me go, you know what? Life is not that easy, my man. And you're going to have to work harder at that. And then I think that when I opened up Food 189 and I failed three times to 92 and then I didn't get really discovered until 97, 98, it kept being that punched in the face thing of work harder, work harder, work harder. Then it was, you're too far into this thing to turn around. You have nothing to lose now. Just go forward because you're already too deep. You're going to just die. And I think that's really what happened. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Damon John in just a moment. Some of you have been wondering whether to come to Nashville to our live marketing workshop. You've been sitting the fence about it. It's a big expense. You got to pay for the workshop, then you got to get on a plane, then you got to figure out what hotel you're going to be in. I realize it's a lot of trouble. But I want to ask you this how much trouble is it for you to wonder whether your marketing is going to work this year? How much trouble is it for you to pay for a website and not have that website work? How many people are not opening your emails? How many people are not placing orders? What if you could deal with all of that trouble in just 48 hours or a little over 48 hours. Here's what happens when you come to a workshop. You arrive usually on a Sunday afternoon. We get together that evening in this beautiful hotel ballroom. We all have drinks and we eat desserts and you get to know the other 100 to 150 business leaders who are there with you experiencing the same thing. And then the next morning at 9 a.m. we get started and we actually work for two solid days to clarify your message. And what this does is it gives you a feeling of confidence when you talk about your brand especially after you start using your new message because when you're at a cocktail party and you say what you do, people actually ask for your business card, some of you, for the first time ever. It makes that much of a difference. And then the second half of Tuesday, the second day that you're at the workshop, we actually wireframe a whole new website. Right there in the room, we wireframe a new website that you can hand to a designer or your designer and have them create. We actually outline lead generating PDFs that you can use to get emails and we come up with subjects and topics for emails that will get opened and actually get people to place orders. I know it's frustrating to go online and find a hotel. I know it's frustrating to book a flight, but I think it's way more frustrating to live every day knowing your marketing could do a lot better. I want you to come. I'll be there at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. I want you to be in the room too. Register right now at storybrand.com. We've got a workshop in June. We've got a workshop in July. Don't put it off. Register now. Go to storybrand.com. A little bit of frustration now will save you a year or perhaps years of frustration in the future. Register today, clarify your message, and get your business growing again.
The book is called Rise and Grind. We're not going to be able to talk about everything in the book, but I do want to share some practical advice in the book. You've got some really great steps. One, all rise, embrace the grind, making time, your early rising. I actually want to spend a little time on that. A day in the life of a shark and grind all night. I actually want to spend a little bit of time on that too. Step back and the power of grind. Can we go to early rising? Because the older I get, the more I realize the earlier I'm up, while the house is quiet, the better my life becomes. You have some pictures and some inspirational stories of folks who just get up and grind. What does early rising mean to you? Well, Grant Cardone gets up before the sun gets up. He says, if I could beat the sun, I can beat anybody, right? <laughs> and that's his theory. You know, and as you go through the book, everybody doesn't have the same formula. But what I've noticed in the book is that probably about out of all these people, they have about the same 14 things in common. They execute them all different ways. What are some of those? What are some of the 14? Number one, they're extremely selfish. Everybody is extremely selfish in a good way. That means they take care of themselves first as much as they can. Then they can be productive to the team, such as, you know, Michael Jordan didn't go to everybody else's practice first. He went to his and then mm. he made sure he can, you know, give to everybody else. They give thanks. No matter what they give thanks. They put family and they put health first and foremost. They schedule every single thing in their life. So you a couple of tips. They'll get up in the morning and they'll say, I will not answer any emails for the first hour of the day, yep. no matter what. Why? Because if I'm taking an email, I'm solving everybody else's goddamn problem. And I never get an email that says, oh, by the way, I solved all those problems I asked you about yesterday and a check's on its way. That's a unicorn. You don't get those emails. And a lot of people don't realize that the more successful you get, the less anybody's trying to help you. And this isn't a complaint, but everybody needs something from you. And if you actually give into everything, you're reversing the formula that got you there in the first place. Right. And you can send out the emails you want for the first hour because Chris Sacker will say, you know, his inbox is defense, his outbox is his offense. So if you just do that alone and then you don't look at Instagram the first hour because when you look at Instagram, everybody's skinnier, sexier, wealthier than you, <laughs> and they're all just as screwed up. But if you start up your day answering hour full of everybody else's emails and then looking and getting social media depression, how do you think the rest of your day goes? You know, so these are small tips of rise and grind. These people on here, especially myself, they don't just kiss the kids and kiss the wife and say, honey, I'll see you later. Because what happens? Your kids end up becoming 30 years old. They're off with their family. They can't see you anymore. And your wife has left you or your husband. What they do is they schedule time to call their mother and say, mother, I miss you. They take their daughters out on dates at 12 years old because they want their daughter to know how a man's supposed to treat them the first time they go out on a date. They'll take their wife. They'll schedule everything. You'll think it's cold. But what you'll do is you'll get to it. If not, you schedule everybody else in your life before your family. The 830 train, the 12 o'clock conference call, the one o'clock meeting and the 830 dinner meeting, and you never schedule your family. And these are a lot of just the simple tricks that can make and help you more productive in your life. It sounds like you're scheduling not just your success, you're scheduling your meaning, your experience of deep meaning. 100%. And everybody in there, they will write their obituary every year because rise and grind doesn't mean get up and go and work as hard as you can until you drop dead. That's the opposite of rise and grind. Have you ever sat down and written your obituary? I have. Can you share a little bit of what you would want it to be? Give me some deal points in your obituary. <laughs> That's a terrible phrase, deal points. But <laughs> What's in it? A man who never compromised any of his morals. He lived by the faith of God. He raised three beautiful daughters. He gave as much as he could to this world to make it a better place. And nobody can ever say that he screwed them intentionally. A couple of things like that. You know, it's pretty long, but, you know, I know we only have limited time. You know, then it says a couple of things about me being a great fisherman and a hell of a Pisces. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> Damien, you say on page 220 of your book, Rise and Grind, whatever it is I'm doing, whatever it is I'm selling, my time in the clubs 
gives me a leg up because that's where my market lives and breathes. First of all, just to get to know you a little bit, what are you doing in the clubs? And then second, why is it so important to be so close to our customers and understand what they're doing, thinking, feeling? Yeah, so the club could be anything in the world that what you perceive. Robert on my show, he's a race car driver, and he's a race car driver because he builds firewalls for big companies like American Express and Nike, and he's in Milan or driving race cars talking to those type of individuals. My customer has always been a streetwise customer that does everything from technology to celebrities to wearing clothes. So I'm in a club, various reasons. Number one, I'm usually out taking out a brand or some kind of client that I have. Number two, I'm watching what everybody's wearing. And number three, you're not going to get Kim Kardashian and Jay-Z and all of them on the golf course at one time, but trust me, you'll get them all in the club and you'll be able to catch them all in one hour and say, what are we doing to make some money? Oh, I need you to wear this brand. How can I help you? I need you in this commercial. What money do you want to split up together so we can invest in? So, you know, that happens in my version of the club. Am I out drinking and partying? No, I'm almost 50 years old. I'm not dancing on any tables. I'm sitting down right. like the 50-year-old. I'm not a creeper, but yet I'm not, you know, yeah. John Travolta on the dance floor. And that's my club. But where is your club? Your club could be the dojo where everybody is practicing karate. It could be the gym. It could be the mothers who are, you know, on the soccer fields. Everybody has a club and you got to go out. And that's how you got to touch your customer because you want to know exactly what they think. You know, and they're not going to tell you what they think unless you see their actions accordingly, you know? As you began to grow, as your company began to grow and you had to duplicate yourself and you had to bring on people, you know, one of my big philosophies is staff your liabilities. Know what you're good at and staff your weaknesses. Who were the first couple people that you hired and what did they do for you? I totally understand and respect what you're saying and I value, you know, listen, I'm not a good bookkeeper or anything else like that. So when you get somebody in that area, I really think you should do this, you know, staff your liabilities. But on the flip side, I also believe there's an area that I am really dominating and I'm really doing well. If I can get somebody under me who's a Swiss Army knife and train them in that area so I can peek a little bit into those other areas that I don't know because I don't want to be taken advantage of. Really? So you're staffing your assets too. You're saying I'm good at this, but I can actually duplicate that if I can bring somebody else and train them? Hey, man, I'm going down to 10 video sets a week. Now, here's exactly what I do. I'm going to take you to these 10 video sets a week, and I'm going to introduce you to everybody, and hopefully within three to four months, I want to see you up to 15 video sets a week. I'm going to teach you my technique. Why? Because I'm getting jerked over here at the manual. Manufacturer, and I don't know what the hell is going on over there. I need to spend some time over there before I hire somebody to help me over at the manufacturer because if not, I'm going to be getting a, a bill for $100,000 when I only need to spend 10000 because I'm the asshole or the sucker at the table. So that's the way I think about it. Would you consider yourself a micromanager? Not at all. I'm a big picture kind of guy. I need somebody who's detailed and I need whatever job I was doing that I thought I was doing good at. I want somebody in there and I go, holy crap, I sucked at it. I thought I was doing good and you're doing better at it for me. Thank you. Let me move on someplace else. One of the things you talk about is taking a step back. You take a step back from your life and you analyze. What's that process look like for you? Is that part of the obituary writing? Is that part of what that is? It is. It's taking a snapshot. Where am I? What am I doing? And why am I doing it? Who am I doing it for? Am I trying to be on social media and or have a public perception to share this with a bunch of people that I couldn't care less about and I don't even know who they are? Or am I converting the time and the things in my life? Am I asking my wife or my husband, are you happy? Instead of assuming what happiness is to them, is my health there? You know, the number one thing that uh, last Good Friday, I went to get a surgery to remove half of my thyroid. I didn't realize it, though. The one hour surgery became three and a half hours because I had stage two cancer in my body that I was unaware of. So 
am I, and I'm cancer-free, am I going out and getting early detection and asking the right questions? As a CEO, I'll sit there and look at a P&L statement every quarter, and I'll ask why, 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 why? How can we convert more? How can we reduce costs and increase sales? How can we do this? I'll keep asking. No matter how great it's going, we could have been up 200%. But if I go to the doctor and he gives me a little checkup and I still don't feel well, I'm not going to ask why. I used to not ask why. I found out now, ask why. And make sure you find out about your health because if you don't get early detection or you don't find out what the hell's going on, then what the hell does uh, anything else matter about work or business or money? You're going to be dead. Do you have an internal sense that your days are numbered, that time is short, you got a window here? And if that is so, how does that affect your life? I do. I don't think I've ever been asked that question, but I, I think we all know that time is short. I hope we do. And I think that I've been, um, I'm this little brown boy from Queens who has been able to surpass so many of my friends in various different ways. And I say, you know, why did God give me this opportunity? And if God gave me this opportunity, I have to keep paying it back. And sooner or later, my number is going to be up. So how much change can I create in this world? And can I stay around long enough to walk my three daughters down the aisle? And what can I do to ensure that I'm going to stay around in that you know length of time? So, of course, I think we're all numbered. And to be very honest, I don't want to be the 95-year-old guy with pampers on eating uh, baby food. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to go out on top, you know, somewhere maybe 80, uh, 85. I don't know, you know. Damon John, this has been one of my favorite interviews we've done so far. I'm incredibly impressed with you, not just as a business person, but as a human being. And I will be watching Shark Tank much differently. The book is called Rise and Grind. You can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. You know, I love stories of people who stood in line for government cheese like my family did. That's right. And ended up making it. I see you as a point on the horizon. I just want to head towards you, Damon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, brother. Bye. I have this fantasy that Damon John and I are now friends. Yeah, <laughs> I think you are best friends. <laughs> I think he wouldn't know me from <laughs> a man on the moon. I just love that. He's just a humble guy. Yeah. A lot of times you meet jerks who have succeeded and you think, okay, well, that means I have to be a jerk to succeed. It's not true. Yeah. First of all, jerks get a lot of attention. People who aren't jerks and are just successful don't yep. sometimes. And it's just not the case. Yeah. Even Jim Collins says that in Good to Great. There are all sorts of successful people, people who are moral and ethical and go to church on Sunday, people who cheat on their wives. There's not a formula for it. But anybody who thinks they have to be a jerk to succeed, Damon John has proved you wrong. Yes. I'm grateful that he came on the show. He's a kind shark. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, we're going to talk about hiring. We're going to talk to several people. It's one of these episodes. It's a new kind of format that we're going to experiment with every once in a while. Yeah. Where we're actually going to hear from a bunch of different voices on a similar topic. Yep. And one of them... Armando Lopez actually works at Ramsey Solutions, hired, I think, 26 people in 28 days. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it's a, about a six-week process. So a six-week yeah. process got started every day, pretty much, for wow. 28 days. And he just talks about how he keeps it organized and how he finds the right people. Yeah. And, JJ, you and I both know you hire the wrong people, yep. and it just affects everything. Yep. And we're grateful to have a team where everybody on board should be on board. Yeah. You know, it's terrific. But I want to play you a little clip of my conversation with Armando. Several other people are going to talk to you, but here's a little clip of my conversation with Armando. This is a practical episode next week that is going to change something that you do that will cost you a lot of pain if you don't listen. But do subscribe to the podcast. Here's a little bit from my conversation with Armando Lopez. You know what's wonderful sometimes is when you have two people interviewing the person at the exact same moment, at Mm. the exact same time, they both hear the exact same response, Mm. and the two people walk away, the two interviewers walk away with a different take on that response. Yeah. 
And it's important to calibrate to make sure that we're on the same page. Why did you interpret it that way? This is how I interpreted it. And as we come together, we get a clear picture for what are we really looking for in this position, in this role. Mm -hmm. That's what prevents that whole settling for someone that isn't cut out to be the right person. It's understanding the role and comparing everybody to that role. Right. What are we expecting them to do? If you compare everybody to the role and not to each other, not to other people, then you're going to end up with the right person for that role. So there you go. Yep. JJ, this last week... Andrew Bell came by. Yes. I was on an airplane and I saw it on Instagram. Yeah. I didn't know he was at the office. He came in the office. What was amazing is Cassie and Ellie McMurray, who are like little sisters to me because I lived in a garage apartment above their parents' house when they were kids. They were born when I was living in that garage apartment. They are now like little sisters to me. One of them goes to Lipscomb University. They flew, Cassie flew to Nashville to attend Andrew Bell's concert, having no idea that he was a friend of StoryBrand. And then Betsy was like, oh, well, Andrew's at the office tomorrow doing a little (laughs) private concert. So I was looking at the Instagram and I just zoomed in on Cassie's face and she was like, white as a ghost, didn't know what to say. It was was really awesome. But he came in, his new record is called Dive Deep and we obviously play portions of it to bumper the show. But he actually came into the office and he played in our living room Mm -hmm. and we're going to close this week's podcast with Andrew Bell live in the StoryBrand studio. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) the living room <laughs> and it was kind of him to do that and go out and get Andrews I think he's he's just up there with some of the greatest songwriters yeah. I think alive today we'll close with a song live from Andrew Bell enjoy this is my heart dive deep you have something that I want to keep Carried away Don't stop I got nothing but time to come down When you wanna start Oh, I don't wanna stay Up out your own Your fire escape But you won't let me go I said just on your stereo We started a fear Started a tidal wave with a spark And I don't know you But are you sticking around Or are you just passing through This in my heart Dive deep You have something that I want to keep Carried away Don't stop I got nothing but time So come down when you wanna start And when I disappeared New York felt wrong without you, dear My future's in your lap your colors in my photograph We started a fuse Started a tidal wave with a spark And I don't know you But you're what I want And that's all You're what I want This in my heart Dive deep You have something that I want to keep 
carried away Don't stop I got nothing but time to come down when you wanna start Hell, I wanna be honest When it has to be honest And I'm hoping you start Roll me in your heart Yeah, then we'll ride on the wall You're what I want, that's all You're what I want, that's all You're what I want, this in my heart Dive deep Something that I wanna keep We get carried away Don't stop I've got nothing but time So come down where you wanna start Come down where you wanna start This is my heart Dive deep This is my heart